Borukata Adonai Eloheinu Melakaolam, Asher Bachar Banu Mikol Haamim, Venatan Lanu et Torato, Borukata Adonai Noten HaTorah. Barukaba Bishem Adonai, may it be speedily and soon in our days that we are brought out of exile into the final redemption. Well, this is the Tisha B'Av GT, the Geula talk, and I wanted to connect this to the Devarim GT and to obviously the GT intro. Uh, so GT has just come into play over the past few weeks of doing the three weeks of mourning because we are desperately in need of hastening the redemption because I don't know about y'all, but the world continues to get more and more crazy every single day and uh, pending natural disasters and all sorts of things are going on. And obviously creation's been groaning since who knows how long, uh, well, at least since we got kicked out of the garden, since we caused thistles and thorns to grow from the earth. I'm pretty sure the earth is not happy about that since everything was all fine before we ate from the tree. But anyway, that's a big digression to say that, you know, the more we talk about the Geula, the more we focus on it, the more we think about it, the more we pray about it, the more it happens. And, you know, um, there is a source actually about how we have to live in, as if we're in the Geula now uh, to speed that up even more so. Uh, let me see if I can find this. I was reading this in the Keher Tumash and I'm just kind of like blue screening as this is going on. So, Everyone stand by. I'm going to find this um, this file here. Oh, okay. Here we go. Here we go. All right. So I'm on the Hasidic Insights, uh, chapter one, and they are looking at, he did not mention their sins explicitly, talking about Moshe. So first of all, it says, Thus, even while rebuking the people, Moshe was careful to vindicate them. And again, I mentioned in the previous podcast on Devarim GT that we need to be people that can rebuke ourselves. And I want to add this to that because, okay, it's it's kind of courageous to uh, step into the realm of rebuking ourselves, but also... I want us to make sure that we vindicate ourselves as well, because neither one of us are perfect. And I was thinking about this because when you think about being born into this world, that you're born into iniquity, you know, and you have your Yetzahara to help you overcome yourself and to to be launched and catapulted into greater levels of uh, divine consciousness of a righteous life to Hashem. And, you know, there are times that you just don't measure up. We don't measure up. I don't measure up. And it's like, okay, so think about your parents. Think about your family, you know, and I'm talking about true Mishpachah. Obviously, some of us since conversion, uh, we've gotten a new Mishpachah. So, you know, shouts out to Hashem 
Todah and may his name be blessed. But that doesn't mean that our 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 birth natural family that we grew up with is just like they're done away with. I mean, they're they're still you know our family. So obviously, there's still the respect and everything that is due, but you have to have boundaries. That's another Josh for another time that I care not to give because that is totally not my area of expertise. But anyway, uh, the vindication part is that when you're with your family, you mess up, you do something that's absolutely horrible. And it's like, first of all, why did I do that? You know, you're like, oh, just so not cool, man. Why? Why did this happen? And obviously you start you know, start doing the cottage for yourself because you're just like, I can't believe I just did that. You know, you just feel so horrible. But your family, they're like, what is wrong with you? Why did you do that? And you're just like, ah, I didn't. I was not. I promise I did not mean to. I don't know how this happened. You know, you just beat yourself up and you're just ready to go outside and get a bat you know, and, uh, yeah, so just put the bat down, first of all, because that, nothing good can come from that, but anyway, this vindication happens that they're still your family, that right there is the depths and the power and the impact of Ahava, which is love, the the love that a mishpaka has for one another is just like I am so upset with you right now. I could take a rocket launcher and just blow you up, but Hashem said, "Do not murder." And furthermore, through the manifested word of Hashem, He said, "Don't even have hatred in your heart." Furthermore, love your neighbor as you love yourself, and you're just like. Oh. You just, mm, you just don't know the grace that Hashem has you in. Okay, so I belabored this enough just to say, as we're rebuking ourselves, be vindicated as well, because you, you have to have that that threshold of, what did I do? Do I regret it? And did I do it on purpose? And if I did do it on purpose, let's work on that. And then if I didn't do on purpose, then let's work on ways to remedy this so that this doesn't happen again. That's literally the process of teshuva is to come to a place of regret and then establish whether you speak it out or write it down some kind of way. I would suggest all of the above that you establish a method that you will enact from that moment of regret going forward to cause this situation, this occurrence, this sin, this Avera, this Avon to not happen again. And so when you look at that threshold, there's that level. And then the vindication is looking at yourself through the eyes of Hashem. And if you have a hard time with that, Hashem broke it down some more by placing his manifestation on a stake, being insulted, being abused to who knows what depth. And the eyes of Mashiach just looking out at all these, at everyone, just having compassion. 
And obviously his eyes can see all of creation, all of generation, just like Adam, because, you know, Mashiach is the second Adam. But the first Adam, when he was created, he literally could see from one end of the universe to another. So imagine the eyes of Mashiach, because his death was not just for his generation. You know, this Zadok, the Zadok, Yeshua HaMashiach, did not just die for his generation. He died for all generations. He died for those who were stillborn. He died for those who never even existed, but were only in the thought of Hashem. He died for them. So past, present, future, and beyond, like he, he died for everyone. This is how Yeshua truly is Yeshua. Like he is the deliverance. He is the salvation for all mankind ever. And, you know, obviously the source for that is Messiah text, which is a compilation of Midrashim and all sorts of oral Torah excerpts that just go to town on really the death of Mashiach and Barnafli and all of that, how that works. And Mashiach saying, you know, that I willingly accept this upon myself because a, a servant is not greater than his master. So, thinking about this vindication aspect, as Moshe is delivering words of rebuke to start off Devarim, which is what we need to experience before we go to Tisha B'Av, literally every cycle of the Parshot, no matter what, if there's a leap year or not, Devarim is always read the Shabbat before Tisha B'Av, which it's just calendar, just ninjiness, you know, to make up a word like that's something like for thousands of years, Devarim always falls on the Shabbat before Tisha B'Av. Just just stop and think about that for a second. Just man, because so many times people try to bash the Jewish calendar. They go, oh, those Jews and they need to sight the new moon first and I'm going out with my shofar and I'm going to do this. And that calendar was made by a Sanhedrin that was after the destruction of the temple. And that, you know, that can't be relevant. We don't need to follow that Jewish stuff. And it's just kind of like, wow, slow down. But when you really think about the true uh, establishment of it, first of all, if you've been in Judaism over the past at least five years, you've seen how the blood moons always line up with the festivals. You see how all the different uh, events that happen in creation always line up with the festivals. You see how um, all the Torah portions always line up as they should because of the Hebrew calendar. Even with the craziness that we've experienced this year and in previous years of how, how the diaspora and Eretz Israel and Yerushalayim, how the tour portion cycles are all split up, like Israel ends up being a, a week ahead of us in Parshot, and then the diaspora is a week behind, but somehow we all sync back up together just in time for each parsha to be read at its appropriate time. If you think about just the immaculateness of that alone, I mean, why would you ever question the Hebrew calendar? Obviously, there's more to that, but I've digressed enough. So back to the Keher Tumash Hasidic Insight. 
about redemption living, which is the essence of GT, by the way. The GT, because I'm a kind of I'm the kind of person that doesn't like to talk about something unless I'm doing it. So when I talk about Geula talk, I'm like I am there, like I am in it. You know, my my arc reactor, so to speak, is set on GT. Like I'm like, man, this needs to happen. I might seem crazy. And I'm totally fine with that because I talked about that before that I'm okay with being crazy. And that's the first step because, you know, when the redemption happens and it's just kind of like, well, I, I was not prepared for this. You know, if people think you're crazy because you want to live in the Gula mentality even before it happens so that you're ready when it happens because nobody knows the day, the time or the hour because it could happen at any time. And the 13 principles of Rambam say we should be ready for Mashiach at any time, any day. And it's a sin to not because it's as if we reject the whole entire Torah, because that's the commentary on that principle. But anyway, you know, and so for anyone who would question you living like that, when the redemption finally happens, it will be a little bit difficult at the moment, you know, to kind of transition be like, oh, this this return of Yeshua stuff that everybody's been talking about for thousands of years it's like it's real it's happening like oh what was wrong with me i didn't believe it before like do you really want to be in that boat i don't want to be in that boat i mean i'll go rescue people out of that boat but i i don't want to be in that boat i'm just saying so it's okay to be crazy because our king is coming it's imminent it will happen so why wait why wait don't wait to be crazy. Be crazy now and be more so crazy for Hashem, which is funny because Shaul even writes about being crazy and out of his mind, you know, when he's talking to the Corinthians and he says, you know, something to the effect of if we seem out of our mind, it's for your sake and it's because of our love for Mashiach. So, you know, that's totally cool. Now, it says, thus, while even rebuking the people, Moshe was careful to vindicate them. This is because he understood that rebuke or punishment is not an end in itself. Rather, its purpose is to improve the recipient. Similarly, we should realize that the purpose of divine rebuke we are presently enduring, i.e. keeping us in exile for so long. We getting rebuked right now, y'all. We've been getting rebuked for at least 2000 years. And the reason why we've been enduring this rebuke is to help us improve. So back to the commentary. So we've been kept in exile. That's a form of rebuke. This is to elevate us to a higher level of divine consciousness and preparation for the imminent redemption. Now, it goes on to say, because God's presence is so hidden during exile, it is especially hard for us to behave consistently in line with our inner beliefs. We are therefore forced to occasionally rebuke ourselves or each other. Nonetheless, we should take care not to speak disparagingly when doing so, we must keep in mind that the purpose of rebuke is to help us improve, preparing us for our individual and collective redemption. Here's where it continues to go. So I went down and he's talking about on the on the side of the Jordan. And um, 
So that's later down in, uh, oh, same, same thing. Just a couple more paragraphs down. It says the message for us is we stand on the threshold of our entry into the promised land with the advent of the final redemption is that we should be that we should already be so focused on our final destination that it is as if we were already living in it. If circumstances force us to be presently outside of it, we should still consider ourselves not at home, but somewhere over there. The same applies to any stage in our lives in which we are awaiting some form of redemption. The first prerequisite of redemption is the awareness that we belong in the redemptive state and that the present preceding state of exile is precisely that exile and not home. Sefer HaSikot 5748, volume 2, page 572 through 574. Get you some. We have a prerequisite to uphold and fulfill, and Tisha B'Av helps us do that because the rebuke that we place ourselves in and under to undergo the observance of Tisha B'Av is reminding us that we're not home and that we should be and that it's okay to feel like we should be because that's where we belong. So, Tisha B'Av is spelled Tav Sheen Ayin Hey Bet Aleph Bet. Okay, Tisha B'Av. If you add the letter Yod, because between the Tav and the Sheen to make the T sound, you can actually add a Yod which would increase the gematria of this, uh, this statement, Tisha B'Av, which is the ninth of Av, it makes that gematria 790. Now, 790 is the gematria of Nishmat. Now, Nishmat is a bracha that we recite on Shabbat and Yom Tov, and uh, this is what it's about. Nishmat is about the soul of every living thing. This is a Jewish prayer recited following the song of the sea, which, by the way, is a Torah source for Tekiyat HaMetim, which is the resurrection. So if anyone goes, yeah, too bad Jews never believed in the resurrection or the, the old law never talked about it. First of all, that's so offensive in so many different ways. But we digress. The song at the sea is something you can give an, an answer or a response to. If anyone goes, the Torah never talked about resurrection. Well, see commentary on song at the sea because, yeah, it says Moshe sang a song. And literally Zohar brought this down about Moshe singing a song, which meant Moshe will have to be resurrected in order to sing this song. So there's that. But anyway, uh, that's not what I meant to bring up. I just wanted to throw out an extra source on resurrection in case anybody needed it for some reason. But anyway, so the Nishma prayer is uh, recited following the song at the sea during the Pesuke de Zimra before the Yistabak on Shabbat and Yom Tov. It's also recited during Pesach Seder 
and some traditions. But the theme of this prayer is the uniqueness of God. So what is this? What are we doing? Tisha B'Av is equivalent to the Nishmat. We are literally, with all of our soul, with every living thing, we're going to bless Hashem. And we're going, to proc- we're going to proclaim his uniqueness as we observe Tisha B'Av. Next thing about this is the gematria of Tisha B'Av is Shem Demut, which is the image, the manifestation, if you will, of name. Okay, and whose name? The one who is called Av, the Father. Who came in the name of the Father? The Son. Who is the name of the Son? Yeshua, salvation, deliverance. And Tisha B'Av is about manifesting that name, manifesting our salvation. So we got the fact that we're going to be doing the Nishmat as far as our essence. And then we're going to be manifesting the name. And then, if you look at the gematria of 790, you take the 7 and you add it to the 9, you get 16. And when you do the gematria for 16, first of all, it's Bayad, which is in the hand. Or Bed David, which is in David, which is Tehillim, by the way, Psalms, which you shall recite. Um, definitely during the month of Elul, there's a whole drop on that. But reciting Tehillim is the equivalent of reciting all five books of Torah because there are five books of Tehillim, which make it equivalent to the Torah. This is brought down by the Midrash Tehillim. The other gematria of 16 is Odeh, which means I shall thank you. So there's that. And then um, we have the gematria of uh, I want to make sure I say the gematria of Hava, which is uh, interesting when you think about that gematria because Hava is one of the parts of Hashem's name. And let me go ahead and go to my source on this real quick, because this word appears in Bereshit 27, 29. So when you go there to Bereshit 27, 29, this word Hava is about to be. And it comes from the word Hevav Aleph, which means to breathe. And the first time this word is actually used, Hevav He, which it sounds a lot like Chava, but Chava is spelled with a Chet. But a Chet and a He, they can be interchanged. But that's another time. We won't do that today. And when you go to Bereshit 27, 29, this is what it says. May people serve you and nations bow down to you. 
May you be the master of your brothers, and may the sons of your mother bow down to you. May those who curse you be cursed, and those who bless you be blessed. This is the blessing given to Yaakov. And, you know, this is kind of uh, kind of intense when you think about the uh, the implications of what's actually going on with this. Because this is the essence of Tisha B'Av is gaining the the Bracha that was gifted to Yaakov, our forefather. And so we're attaching ourselves to this bracha on top of manifesting the name, on top of praising and blessing Hashem and proclaiming his uniqueness. So that's the gematria of Tisha B'Av. And so when we look at Tisha B'Av, it's all about tikkuning the night of weeping. And I'm going to drop this down from the Midrash says about uh, the weeping that endured for a night. But joy that did not come in the morning because the weeping was not taken to heart like it should have been. Which, by the way, Ishpela brings down that this is the reason why tears are the mitzvah of Tisha B'Av, because with tears... We were torn away from the redemption that we would have experienced originally. And it's only through tears that we will be reconnected with the redemption. So the mitzvah of Tisha B'Av is tears. Mita Kinege Mita. We weeped on this night before because we didn't think Hashem would redeem us and bring us into the Geula. And so... It must be with tears that we weep that Hashem bring us into the Geula. So may Hashem move us all and stir us all, kolechad, to really cry and lift up our voices. So I'm going to pick up on page 170, and it says, It shall be as you wish, responded Hashem. You will pass away in the wilderness. Okay, so the reason why... We spent 40 years in the wilderness perishing is because we wanted to. So let me just go ahead and flip that on its head. The reason why we're not in the final redemption is because we don't want to be. So challenge thrown down. Uh, yeah, I was going to say I tried to do it as nice as possible, but that was not nice. So do we want to be in, in the final redemption? Is the question. And if we want to, Hashem responds, Mita Kinege Mita. And tis the season, or tears the season. So, continuing on, it says, The night of lamenting was the night of the ninth of Av. So, Ma'ariv, Tishabe Av, this is the night of lamenting. This year, that will be as we're lighting candles and partaking of Arab Shabbat, and rejoicing and blessing Hashem, as well as this is the Shabbat Chazon, the Shabbat of vision, and may Hashem grant us a vision of the final temple, and even show us the manifested glory of it, gathering us in with the return of Mashiach. Amen. 
King Ehiratzon. So, uh, but when we observe Tisha B'Av, we will start our fasting on the Ma'ariv of this year will be the 10th of Av. But originally it was the 9th of Av. So a beautiful tikkun is underway for sure. So it says, the lamenting began on that night. Said the Almighty, you wept without reason. I will therefore provide you with a cause. This sounds way too much like my parents when I was younger. Oh, you crying? I'm a geese on the crapper. You know, but anyway, says the ninth of Av will become a time of national mourning. On this very date, both the first and second Beit HaMikdash will be destroyed. On the ninth of Av, it was decreed that both temples would be laid waste and that the Jews would be exiled. As it says, Tehillim 106, 24 through 27, and they despised the desirable land. They did not believe his word. Mm. Despising the land, not believing his word. They murmured in their tents. Okay, so lots of complaining and lots of uh, Lashon Hurrah because Lashon Hurrah happens in secret. Okay, and what we do in secret will be revealed in the light. So we got to be careful with that. And it says, and did not listen to the voice of Hashem. Today, if we shall hear his voice will be the day of salvation. So because we haven't heard his voice, that's why we haven't experienced salvation. And it says he swore to cause them to fall in the wilderness and cause their descendants to fall among the nations and disperse them in the lands. Bako Sikve Baleila, which is she, the Jewish people, will weep in the night. Echa, Lamentations 1 2. To what does the twofold weeping refer to? They will weep about the destruction of the first and second temples. They will weep about the exile of the ten tribes and that of Yehuda and Benyamin. The complaints continued on the next morning. They went to sleep complaining and they woke up complaining. So I guess there was no hand washing and I guess there was no Modeani. Just throwing it out there. It says an outcry that cropped up where whenever they there were complaints could be heard from a group of dissenters. Let us appoint new leaders and return to Mitzrayim. Side note. There was nothing to return to because Mitzrayim was just a little bit destroyed. And besides, you'd have to cross back through the Yam Suf. Have fun with that. And it says they suggested us appoint Datan instead of Moshe and Aviram instead of Aharon. Wow. Take the anti-Mashiachs, like the two Mashiachs and like the two false Mashiachs and, and go back. That's the plan. That does not sound like a good idea. So they wanted to put Dayton and Avi Ram. Again, this is before Parshat Korach. So, you know, they uh, they were still around to lead the people if they needed to. Anyway, it says they want to go back to Egypt with those two Mashiachs, those two false Mashiachs. It says we prefer to be slaves there to falling by the swords of the Canaan. We don't want to go out to battle. 
Hashem says, by the way, when you go out to battle, you're not going to lose because you're going to be listening to me and you're going to be righteous people. So therefore, if you're afraid of going to battle, then you must not have heard me and you must not be walking in righteousness because if you were, then you would have no fear because fear comes from the sin that you heap up and pile up on yourself, which puts you under judgment because you're not making teshuva. So therefore... You want to go back to Egypt because you want to sin and you don't want my yoke and you you're just not listening to me. You want to do your own thing. Side note, this is the reason why no one thinks to the Torah of Hashem is possible to even be done, much less even thought about because it's too inconvenient. Torah is only inconvenient if you want to do your own thing and if you have your own agenda. That's the only way it's inconvenient. But if you want to give yourself completely and wholeheartedly to Hashem, Torah is the easiest thing and the most mind-blowing thing that you will ever experience in your life. I guarantee it. You don't have to pay me, but you can take it to the bank. Okay, but anyway, it says, because um, I was going to say, I bet you, you know, I bet you like a million bazillion dollars and I would be that rich because this is truth. But anyway, as far as Torah is not inconvenient, it's only inconvenient when you have your own agenda, when you're racked up in sin and just off the derrick. Anyway, so that's an indictment. Awkward. OK, they were always ready to investigate them and return there. Wow. They were always ready to investigate Moshe and Aharon. That's not good. It says let. Okay, so the phrase, let us return to Mitzrayim, implied also the Egyptian lifestyle, which is without Torah and mitzvot. So if you really think you live for Hashem, but you don't have Torah and mitzvot, you're walking like an Egyptian, literally. It looks like a cool dance move, but at the end of the party, when the, when the music stops, <laughs> this is just not going to be good. But anyway... It says, this therefore constituted rebellion against the Almighty. So I just want to drop down to a little comment here on page 173 because there ended up being a plague breakout uh, in the camp. Because it says, let me destroy them through a plague of pestilence. There is, first of all, let me re go back. At the beginning of this sentence, it says there is no longer hope of implanting in this generation the amuna and fear of heaven needed to live in Eretz Israel. Oh, my goodness. In order to experience the final redemption, in order to live in Eretz Israel, you have to have implanted in you, i.e. rooted in you, deeply rooted in you, amuna, which is Belief and faith and action in Hashem's word. And then you have to have Yerat Hashemayim, a fear of heaven. You have to have a, oh my gosh, I am not the judge. I am not the king. I am not the creator. And if I violate anything, I could turn into a greasy spot. That's called Yerat Hashemayim, fear of heaven. And you need these things. You have to have Amuna and Yura in order to live in Eretz Israel and experience the final redemption. That's ridiculous. 
But I continue to the statement. It says, let me destroy them through a plague of pestilence. Footnote. Why did Hashem propose to annihilate the people by means of pestilence? Okay, so check this out. It says a plague would cause a lesser Hilul Hashem, which is a desecration of the name of Hashem. Then they're falling into the enemy's hand. This is from He's Kuni. I love that guy. And it says a plague of pestilence. The word for pestilence is the bear. Dalid Bet Resh. And it says, this would be appropriate Mita Keneged Mita penalty for their forbidden Debar, which is speech. Dalit Bet Resh. This is from the Rokayak. So Hashem uses Debar for Debar. I just thought that was ridiculous. So anyway, so there's the whole thing about the graves and they laid in the graves and they did this for 40 years, the 40th or 38 years, Slika. And in the 40th year, when they did this, they didn't die. And so they were able to come up out of the grave. But it they laid there until Tuba Av, the 15th of Av, for a whole nother seven days just to make sure they didn't get off by any count or anything like that because we're notorious for counting the days wrong when we try to predict our own stuff, you know. So it's just like, follow Hashem's calendar and everything will be fine. So it's just like, well, we were following the calendar and it was the 9th of Av and then it was the 10th of Av and then it was the 11th of Av and then it was the 12th of Av and then it was the 13th of Av and it was the 14th. And we were just like, man, we're not sure. It's like, no, Hashem said, that's it. This is done. This is it. This is the resurrection time. And they came up out of the grave again. Like this is a picture of resurrection coming up out of the grave. And so may it be so that this Tisha B'Av, we experienced that no more death, no more plague, no more mourning. And that we're done dying out in the wilderness and that we're done being rebuked and done being in exile. So. The note that I did not get to finish in the previous podcast about the tycoon of the spies. I'm just going to jump right in. Uh, so first of all, I started with Rebbeinu Bakia Shemot 18.1. It says, during the exile in which we find ourselves nowadays, we will be helped by the prophet Eliyahu, a descendant of the tribe of Levi, just like Moshe. The second helper will be the Mashiach ben Yosef, the redeemer from the tribe of Yosef, like Yehoshua, who was from the tribe of Ephraim. This is based on Jewish Christian theological confrontation involving Nachmanides in his Sefer Hageula, page 291, edited by Rabbi Chavel. Side note, this is Rabbeinu Bakia. Side note, Yeshua totally says, I am with you until the end of this exile, Matthew 28. So we're literally being helped by Yeshua ben Yosef, <laughs> as well as Eliyahu. All right, so I'm going to continue. It says, just as the first redemption resulted in Yitro converting to Judaism and returning to the fold, 
his ancestor was Abraham. That's just, that's just uncalled for. Yitro is a descendant of Abraham. So Yitro is like the paradigm of the prodigal son <laughs> returning home to the father. But anyway, it says, so as a result of the final Geula, all the surviving Gentile nations will convert and join Judaism. Legends of the Jews, book two, volume one, section, you ready for this? 488, all the way down. But I'm going to pick up in 487. It says, on his deathbed, Yosef took an oath of his brethren, and he bade them on their deathbed likewise to take an oath of their sons to carry his bones to, and it says Palestine. And I just want to point out anytime you see Palestine in the writings, this is a reference to Canaan, which is a reference to Eretz Israel. So I'm just going to go ahead and skip all those steps. And instead of saying Palestine, I'm going to say Eretz Israel. Anyway, it says when God should visit them and bring them up out of Eretz Mitzrayim, he said, I that am a ruler could take my father's body up to the Holy Land while it was still intact. Of you, I do but make the request that you carry my bones from here. Because I don't know how long my skin and my flesh basically will be attached. So I may be bones by the time that Hashem visits you and brings you up. But nevertheless, you will bring me up. And nevertheless, Hashem will. So it's just kind of this whole thing. We don't know how drawn out this is going to be. But at some point, it's going to happen. I may be just bones by then. But that's okay. It's going to happen. So take me up out of here. And by the way, the word for bones is also the same word as essence. At Zim and Atzmut. Okay. So anyway, it says, um, carry my bones from here and you may enter them in any spot in Eretz Israel. For I know that the burial place of the fathers was appointed to be the tomb only of three patriarchs and their three wives. Yosef took the oath to carry his remains along with them. When they left Mitzrayim, by the way, this is a vow. We just read about that, Matot Masay, so apply all of that study. And it says, from his brethren and not from his sons to bury him at once in Eretz Israel. The important note about that is this is a further tikkun for the sale of Yosef because we all had basis hatred against Yosef. And so now... Because the brothers have to do this, they are tycooning themselves for their hatred of him and fulfilling his request. Instead of throwing him in a pit, they're now going to honor him and bury him in Eretz Israel. Continuing, it says, For he feared the Egyptians would not give the latter permission to transport his bones, even if they recalled what Yosef had been allowed to do with his father's body. They would object that Yosef had been the viceroy and a wish preferred by one of so high an estate could not be denied. Furthermore, he adjured his brethren not to leave Mitzrayim until a redeemer should appear and lead or and announce his message with the words, Pakod, I have surely visited you. A tradition which Yosef received from his father who had it from Yitzhak 
and Yitzhak in turn had heard it from Avraham. And he told them that God would redeem Yisrael through Moshe as through the Messiah, in this world as in the world to come. And the Egyptian redemption would begin in Tishrei, when Yisrael would be freed from slave labor and would be completed in the following Nisan when they would leave Egypt. And so for us, just the little insert here for Lapid, that our exile ended from our slavery because we're no longer slaves. Yeshua told us that. I mean, the Talmudim told us that. The writings tell us that, the Basura tells us that we're no longer slaves to sin and death, which is the ultimate exile. And now we're awaiting the return of Mashiach to finally bring in the finalization, like the final redemption, because it's already begun. It's now we're just waiting for the finishing point. So as it was in Mitzrayim, it started in Tishrei, ended in Nisan. For us, it started in Nisan, will end in Tishrei. That's important because there is a beautiful uh, Haggadah that drops this down. Uh, I took a picture of it. Let me go ahead and grab that real quick. Um, doom, doom. I've taken so many pictures of so much stuff. It's from the Mase Nisim on Pesach Haggadah. Magid Halakma Anya 3.5. That is a large source. It says, The two phrases at the end of the passage reflect a controversy in the Talmud about when the final redemption will take place. Tishri or Nisan. According to one point of view, the final redemption will take place in Nisan at the time of the year that we celebrate Pesach. And according to the other point of view, the redemption will be in Tishrei. If the redemption is to incur to occur in Tishrei when we celebrate Rosh Hashanah, the birthday of the world, then the focus of the redemption is more universal. If, on the other hand, the redemption takes place in Tishrei, then we must assume that the final redemption will take place one year from the upcoming month of Tishrei. That would mean that the release of the Israelites from slavery would not occur until next Nisan and the final redemption the following month of Tishrei. All of that to say, the final redemption happening in Tishrei is about redemption for the entire world, not just for the Jews, because Romans 1.16, again, is a simple, simplified, condensed uh, version that salvation is for the Jews first, and then it's out to the rest of the world, which is redemption begins in Nisan, the final redemption happens in Tishri. That's the one we're waiting on. So, all this to say, the 17th of Tammuz, five things happen. And they're linked to the 9th of Av. First, the sapphire tablets were broke. Okay? So, we got all that. And then it says, Rabbi Benjamin Bletch, remarkable custom. He, he brings this down, talking about something that links Pesach and Tishba'av. 
It says, this is a remarkable custom that seems very strange. A custom that links the two days we have seen were decreed two such dissimilar and contrasting verdicts. On the very night we look forward to redemption, we have a tradition of eating a hard-boiled egg, which many commentators explain is meant to commemorate the meal of mourning immediately prior to the beginning of the fast of Tisha B'Av. What is the meaning of this seemingly bizarre connection? It is the same truth that is expressed yet another amazing way. Tradition teaches us Mashiach will be born on Tisha B'Av. What can the two possibly have in common? The answer is profound. From the tragedy of one comes the redemption of the other. By rectifying the sin of the lack of faith responsible for the divine decree of Tisha B'Av, we will be worthy of the blessing of redemption. What both of them, the 15th of Nisan and the 9th of Av, share is recognition of the Seder of history. So when we have our boiled egg that represents the Pesach lamb on the night of the Seder, this is connected to the hard boiled egg that we have prior to the onset of the fast of Tisha B'Av, because each egg that we eat is anticipating the tragedy that leads to the redemption. Because on the night of the Seder, the firstborns died that did not have blood on the doorposts. And obviously Mashiach, who was the firstborn of all creation, died because he died at the end of the 14th of Nisan, right before sundown. And then as the 15th of Nisan was uh, beginning, he was in the grave. So that tragedy leads to a redemption and the hard boiled egg is a picture of that. And I just want to comment that this takes on a whole new meaning of Kilul Hashem when you think about the Schmeister egg hunt. Because not only are you taking in vain the sacrifice of Mashiach, his death, that literally liberates us. But now you're also taking away the hope and the resurrection because it it's the epitome of anticipating that Mashiach is going to come and redeem us and that his birth, like his rebirth, like the resurrection, which, by the way, is where Mashiach ben David comes into play. So we've had a a pre taste, a foretaste of things to come of the Mashiach ben David for the 40 days that Mashiach was walking around in his resurrected body. So we're waiting on him to be revealed again to us and maybe soon. And so when you think about these Schmeister eggs, throwing them out there, causing children to hunt for them just so they can get money and prizes and candy, you're now taking away the symbolism of the depth of the tragedy and the redemption. You now overturn that and cast that out and you become the epitome of why we celebrate Tisha B'Av. So I would just point out that these other holidays like Schmeister, Xmas, Shalloween, Schmalentine's Day, all of those, they're connected to what started the three weeks of mourning. Ultimately, each one of them are a specific golden calf that did not work out well for the northern kingdom who set up golden calves uh, at the border of their country to keep people from making aliyah to 
uh, Yerushalayim for the pilgrimage festivals. If we didn't learn from the golden calf at the foot of the mountain, why would we not learn from it later? And why are we not learning from it now? The whole reason we have three weeks of mourning, the whole reason why we're not in the final redemption is because of golden calves. So why shall we continue to make them? Crack the egg, quit hunting for it, put it on a Seder plate, eat it, eat it with bread that's dipped in ashes before you start your fast of Tisha B'Av. Anyway, side note, we won't be doing the egg in the ash this year because we're going to be coming out of Shabbat. So the Shabbat is already taking the sanctity of what this custom of the egg and the bread and the ash are taking. So that's a whole exponential turnt up <laughs> tacoon on so many different levels. So may that momentum also thrust us into the final redemption. Amen. So just doing some research on the tacoon of the 10 spies, I'm looking at the uh, Zohar, the Safra de Zenuta, fifth chapter, where it's talking about Enoch is Malkut Memtet, and that the servant of, and that he is the servant of Memtet, the Tetragrammaton, Zeranpin. So yes, there are two Memtets. Just wanted to drop that out there. So if you ever hear Enoch is Memtet, well, there's a six-letter name Memtet and a seven-letter name Memtet. The sixth letter is the Malkut, the lower Memtet, which is Enoch. And then the seven-letter Memtet is Zeranpin, which is Memtet Hashem, the angel of Hashem. So, uh, there's all of that to throw out. And then, um, so the two Memtets are linked to Yehoshua and Caleb because in this little section of Zohar, it says there were Nephilim, literally fallen ones in the earth in those days, Bereshit 6.4. This is as is written. And from there, it was parted and branched into four streams, Bereshit 2.10. For ever since the place where Gani then parted, which is Malkut of Adzilut, so the lowest sephira of the highest worlds, okay, from there, the fraction started, the, the brokenness started. So the highest worlds still remain intact, Adzilut, and then the succeeding worlds all the way down into where we are in the lowest of worlds, all of this fragmentation and all of this brokenness. So that's what that's talking about. So Gani Den parted from there. So this is called fallen, meaning through the three worlds of Berea, Yetzirah, and Asiya. Creation, formation, and action. It says, for all those that fell there from the grades of Azilut are called fallen. As it is written, and from there, from thence it was parted. So, all of what we're inhabiting in our reality and what surrounds us and what's above us, all the way up until just before you enter Adzilut and the higher worlds that there's brokenness and there's fallenness going on. So this all has to get rectified is basically what this is saying. And it says there were in the earth in those days, but not afterwards until Yehoshua came. And I just want to point out, this is talking about Yehoshua ben Nun, which he is called Yeshua. But now expedite that up to Yeshua 
Ben Yosef, because, you know, Yosef was his earthly father. Hashem is his heavenly father. So Yeshua Ben Hashem, if you really want to go there, that's fine. Yeshua Memtet, that's totally fine. Yeshua Zeranpin, that's fine. Okay, however you want to slice it, that's when the fallenness ends. But not afterwards, as it says. So it says, and the children of Elohim were hidden, which the children of Elohim were the fallen ones who came down and cursed themselves, by the way, in order to come down and take on the form of man and have relations with women and give birth to the fallen ones, which were the Nephilim, the giants and everything that ruled the earth or roamed the earth. But anyway, so once Yeshua came, though, the brokenness stopped and then the the corrupted ones who were fallen were hidden. And it says, namely, the two secret spies about whom it is written and hid them, which is Yehoshua 2, 4. The two spies that were hidden, by the way, is Caleb and Pincus. Pincus didn't have to be hidden because he just disappeared. Because remember, Pincus is Eliyahu and Eliyahu appears and disappears. This is why we have a chair for Eliyahu at every Brit Malah. This is why we also go look for Eliyahu uh, during Pesach Seder. And this is why we have all the traditions that Eliyahu shows up in different guises to talk to different sages. So all of that to say, the two spies are linked to Yehoshua and Caleb, which are linked to the two Memtets, which hide the brokenness. Yehoshua and Caleb are the two who tried to put away the brokenness of the report of the ten spies that caused the onset of Tisha B'Av. So to Tikkun Tisha B'Av, we have to hide away the ten, namely the broken ones, the fallen ones, the children of God who corrupt themselves. So that is us. We need to stop corrupting ourselves. Stop the Lashon Hara. Rebuke ourselves. Vindicate ourselves. Lay in our grave. Boom. Okay. Now, it's important to note as well that in Bami Bar 14, 1 through 10, is this whole account about uh, the grumbling, the spies, and Yehoshua and Caleb coming back to combat that. And I just want to point out that it says that uh, it says Yehoshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Yefune, who were among those who had explored the land, tore their clothes. They said to the whole assembly of B'nai Israel, the land through which we passed, literally the two of them, okay? The two Mashiachs are speaking as one. Because remember, Yehoshua was from Yosef, and Caleb is from Judah. So you got Judah and Joseph coming together, the stick in Hashem's hand, you know, where the final redemption happens. Yeah, all of that. Okay, Ezekiel stuff. The stick of Ephraim, the stick of Yehuda, put them together in the hand of Hashem. Okay. So it says, they're both speaking together. It says, if Adonai is pleased with us, he will lead us into the land and will give it to us a land flowing with milk and honey only don't rebel against Adonai don't be afraid of the people of the land they will be food for us literally it says they will be lechem they are our bread Ishpelah brings down that we will consume them like we consume food which we when we consume food we uh we basically uh gather the divine sparks 
And so we bring in the divine sparks. We're doing that. This is a form of conversion. So literally the giants could have been converted. They could have literally said, you know what? We don't want to fight you. We want to actually become, you know, a part of your Eretz Israel. We want to become a part of Am Yisrael. We want to be given a name better than that of sons and daughters. We know we can't destroy you, so we will work for you. We want to be with you. We want to become you. We will be your bread, you know, or we will fight them and we will win and defeat them as easily as we break bread and consume it. That's literally the commentary on that. So shouts out to each Pela for all of the beautiful insight on that particular phrase. And I just wanted to add to that hashtag. They are toast. Hashtag hot and bready. Hashtag eat them like holla. Hashtag Keter talk. Because Keter is when you take all 10 Sephirot, which by the way, you need to know there are two tens. There's the ten of your animal soul and the ten of your godly soul. Take those two tens, put them together, that equals 20, which 20 is the kaf, and kaf stands for keter. It is literally the cover that goes over the head. And keter is crown. So when you talk about Yehoshua and you talk about Caleb, you're talking about the two Mashiachs, which both are 10. Okay, they're both two Yods. And by the way, when you put two Yods together in Hebrew script, that is literally an abbreviation for the divine name. So there's also that. So Caleb, Yehoshua, the two tens, the Keter, that's Hashem. Anyway, this is Keter talk. Put everything together, it's Hashem. So Keter is 20, the 10 from Yehoshua and the 10 from Caleb, both inherited the portion of 10. As it is written, Keher Tumash, Bamibar 13.1, send out men, if you wish, who will inspect Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. I already told them that it is a good land, but they don't believe me. Let them inspect it. But since they doubt me, they will now run the risk of misinterpreting what they see and forfeiting their opportunity to inherit the land. Who forfeited their opportunity? The 10. So fast forward, Bar 1438. But the ones that didn't forfeit, which is Yehoshua and Caleb, check this out. But Yehoshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Yephuneh, remained alive and even received the land inheritance rights of the other men who went to tour the land, i.e. each of them received the portion of the 10. So you have so many different levels of 10 here because the 10 is the yod that Moshe gave to the name of Hosea, which made his name become Yehoshua. And then you also have the 10, which is the portion of the 10 spies. And that was given to Caleb and Yehoshua together. So there's all that. So on making the tikkun of the 10 spies, it's done by transforming the 10 into two. You have Yehoshua the upper and Caleb the lower. And remember, Moshe is an acronym of Memtet Sarhapanim. Toda Rabbah Beni B from Parsha Mishpatim, citing Shanae Lukot Habrit, volume 2, page 756 through 757. Because Moshe prayed over Yehoshua and gave him 10. 
But where did Caleb get his ten from? Caleb went to Hebron to Machpelah to pray at the tomb of the Avot, which are the Hanok. Remember, Hanok is Enoch, and Enoch was the one who is Malkut, which is the ten, because he's the lower Memtet. So that's that connection. So the ten comes through the Avot. And Hanok also means to be trained up, as in train up a child in the way they should go, from Proverbs 22.6. And Hanok is the trained up ones, and this embodies the um, uh, this embodies Malkut. So Yeshua says, seek first the Malkut, and all these, which is the ten, will be added to you, Matthew 6.33. Thus the two Memtets, I mean Yehoshua and Caleb, I mean, whoops, Moshe and the patriarchs, I mean, whoops, I mean, yes, contain the two tens, which put together equals 20, which is Keter. So, uh, Keter is also said to be the 11th Sephirot, and uh, the 11th Sephirot of Keter is where all of the other Sephirot flow from. So starting with Chokmah, going to Bina, Da'at, and all the way down to Malkut, that all comes from Keter, which is above all of that. This is why, so this is from the Incredible Talmud, by the way. He, he also cited some other things up there, but this specifically came from him. And it says, this is why Tuba Av is seven days, like the 15th of Av, is seven days, i.e. Yeshua, the seventh millennium, after Tishabah because it is the end of all death. This is the end of Shiva, which is the seven day morning observance of someone who passes. And then it says, and then he will take us into the Alam Haba wearing white and dancing in the fields, straighten up at the resurrection in time for Elul, which is the Ani Ledodi Vedodi Li. Revelation 21.4, this is where I tagged and said, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, nor shall there be mourning or crying or pain any longer, for the former things have passed away. And so on Tuba Av, this is said to be the night where the young maidens danced in all white in the fields. And this is where you could go and find your future wife and, um, you know, go underneath the hoopah and get married and that was that was uh, the whole picture of the resurrection is about renewal entering underneath the hoopah of of the final betrothal because what mashiach has brought us to is the betrothal and what we're awaiting is the divine hoopah and the marriage canopy and the celebration of the wedding celebration which is why there's the whole great wedding feast which is sukkot Sukkot is a is a picture of that. That is what we're awaiting on to be able to sit in the Leviathan skin one day with our beloved Mashiach Yeshua partaking of the great wedding feast. So I just want to end with this about nine, which is Tet, which is the beginning of Tisha B'Av, that as we are celebrating this year during the actual day of Tishba Av, only to go into the morning of Tishba Av on the 10th of Av, which will happen at the uh, onset of Havdalah. 
let's keep this in mind that we're trying to turn nine into ten. And so I'll start with uh, Sefer Otiot by Rabbi Kushner on the letter Tet. He says, you cannot pronounce the letter Tet until you go out early in the morning, in the spring morning, and see the dew, which is tall. And he says, and so what blessing for giving life? And it says, uh, by what miracle is there dew and why is there grass? And why are there dew and rain, which is tal umetar, the water sustaining life? And so you dip yourself, which is tavila, which is, by the way, what you do in a mikvah. You don't mikvah yourself. You tavila yourself in the mikvah. And it says, so you tavila, which is tet. And it says, and wash yourself of the defilement, which is the tuma. And it says, which encrust a soul, then you will again find Tahara, which is purity, for Tet is pure and good. The Jewish wisdom and the numbers follows up, talking about the number nine, that, you know, Tisha B'Av is the ninth of Av, and it's the, the whole cycle. And it says this is a regression from 10 down to nine conveys the loss of the Shekinah that is not present in the first nine hand breaths above the ground. So there's a damaged relationship. And we have noted the loss of the Shekinah is marked by the tragic reversal of 10 to 9. One further expression of this is the breakdown in the marital relationship between husband and wife, where a couple lives in mar marital harmony God resides with them as his Shekinah rests in their midst. Conversely, a breakdown in their intimate relationship marks a move away from 10, which also marks the state of holiness, to the Tesha Midot, which is the nine characteristics in a damaged relationship with any resultant offspring bearing a spiritual blemish. Consequently, the marital harmony is sullied and the relationship between husband and wife disintegrates. Where there is a symbolic breakdown of the wholeness of ten that fragments into nine, the response must be to reverse it by turning it once again towards ten. Man must again identify with the theme of turning towards that exists within the number nine and must transfer individual separate parts, i.e. those fallen as brought down in the Safra from the Zohar, the fifth chapter, the, the Nephilim, we got to hide that in Mashiach, Yeshua. It says these separate parts, you got to transfer them individually into the communal integrated whole of 10. Marital disharmony characterized by the nine characteristics or the loss of the Shekinah that is not present at the nine handbreadths from the ground must be elevated to the level of 10. This is man's role in the world. His annual review of accountability is set for every Rosh Hashanah on the date of man's creation. Man must maintain his obligation to partner with God to turn creation towards its perfection. This means man must reverse the damage in the temple's destruction on Tisha B'Av. Man must reverse the damage in the temple's destruction on, on 
Tisha B'Av, we will be sitting at our Shabbat table operating in the elements and the essence of the temple service because that's why we have Arab Shabbat. That's why there's the candle, which is the menorah. That's why there is the uh, the showbread, which is the challah, the table of the showbread. That's why, you know, we have the, the Zimmerot, we sit around the table. This is representing the altar and the sweet smells and the aroma. This is the golden altar, the Holy of Holies is when the husband and the wife, you know, celebrate on the night of uh, Arab Shabbat. They become Echad. Anyway, all that to say that we must reverse the damage and we will be sitting in the reversal of that damage. So we have to carry that out into our mourning to manifest through our death and resurrection because submitting ourselves to death as we undergo the fast and all the customs, read the keynote, say all the prayers, really mean them, be connected with them, and tikkun that day, which led the numerical regression from 10, from 10 to 9. So our agenda must be to view time like the number 9 as the process of turning towards the glorious future. So may it be so that Adonai help us to turn all of creation towards the glorious future. Why? Because we can and we should want to. And that is totally fine. Because Mashiach says you won't see my face again until you say Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai. So let us all say Baruch Haba B'Shem Adonai. Baruch Atah Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam. Asher natan lanu torat emet, vechaye olam nata betokenu, baruch ata adonai, notain ha Amen.